0: Well, thanks, Julian, and uh, thanks, Nathan, for reading to us. Friends, keep your Bibles open. Uh, let us uh, I, 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 like Julian, i am really looking forward to uh, getting our heads into Ephesians. I think it's a great book of the Bible and incredibly helpful for us as a church. And as we actually, uh, the question I think we're going to be asking as we delve into this particular letter over the next uh, term and a half of Ephesians, the question is, where is God's power today? Uh, it may not be a question that's at the forefront of your mind necessarily, But it is a question that is often lurking just beneath the surface, I think, of our Christian lives, even if we don't always verbalise it, uh, at least not in those particular words. It might be lurking in the background, for example, when God doesn't answer our prayers the way we want him to. Uh, It might be lurking in the background when we suffer and there seems to be no let-up. Or when we put ourselves out to share the gospel and all we get is rejection. Or it might be lurking in the background when when I struggle with some persistent sin that I just can't seem to break free from, even though I pray for it over and again. Or it might even be there when I long for a spouse or when I long for children and God doesn't provide them. There's lots of ways, isn't there, when we might ask the question uh, where we see the evidence of God's power at work in our world today. Now, just this week, I was talking with someone uh, from our church who said to me, I just wish God would give, give us a break. That just something in all that is going on would go in our favor. And you've probably felt like that at some point in your life. What about when you look at the state of our church today? We've already reflected on this a little bit, haven't we? If God is so powerful, why doesn't his church look more powerful? Are you discouraged by the state of the church today? Now, we've lived through an era of church decline in the West. Can now get you in serious trouble. Though, still, I guess, not the kind of trouble that they see in other parts of the world. But just try and express, for example, a Christian understanding of marriage, uh, or of sexuality, or of family, or of race or a number of other topics. Uh, Discuss those kind of things in your workplace or your university setting or school or wherever it might be. And it may be more than just ridicule that you get. The church looks rather weak. God looks rather weak. And so the temptation might be to keep our heads down, uh, to be discouraged, to wonder what our, our future holds. But can I remind you about the taunts that were made at Jesus when he hung dying on the cross. Remember as blood was streaming down his body, as he gasped for breath, as he looked defeated. Do you remember the taunts that came to Jesus in that space? Come down from the cross if you're so powerful, if you really are the Son of God. And of course, Jesus didn't come down from the cross, that wasn't his plan, but he did rise up from the dead. See, things aren't always what they might seem to be on the surface. Uh, There is a danger for the church, can I say, that we become discouraged by what things might look like on the surface. But that danger, I think, only exists when we don't properly understand or remember or take to heart The teaching of the Apostle Paul in this great book of Ephesians that we're just about to work through, this is a a letter of great encouragement, can I say, to the church. It's gonna be a letter of great encouragement, I hope, to us. Paul wrote so that the Ephesian church would not lose heart in the trials that they faced and then be tempted to move away from the gospel. We must not let looks deceive us, I think, as church today. We must not kind of lose heart based on what we see happening on the surface of things. And can I say, I think there's too much at stake to get disturbed or worried about those kind of things. Now, I hope throughout this series in Ephesians that together we'll actually come to to see or actually be reminded uh, just how precious is Christ's church that he has bought with his own life and how integral our role is to God's great plans for our world. But before we get into the letter itself, uh, let's just get things in context. Uh, we've already been doing that a little bit uh, having a, by having a look at Paul's own ministry both in Ephesus and its surrounds. We've looked a little bit at Acts chapter 19 uh, and I think one of the first things that you see is that Paul's, Paul's ministry in Ephesus and the surrounds was a very victorious, a powerful and victorious ministry. We saw it in Acts chapter 19 verse 10, uh, how the apostle Paul had preached daily for two years uh, in Ephesus in the hall of Tyrannus. And we read in verse 10, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Uh, I think there's a bit of a map coming up on your screen there. The gospel spread, notice, not just through the Ephesus, but it spread throughout all of Asia. You see that region there on the map. Thousands are being saved and turning to Christ throughout Asia. But not only that, in verses 11 and 12, we're told that God was doing many extraordinary miracles through the, through the hands of Paul. Now, just like most of the miracles in the book of Acts, they authenticated Paul as a genuine apostle who was continuing the work of Jesus himself. And the gospel was having an extraordinary impact on Asian society. Look at 18, chapter 18 verse and following. Not chapter 18, sorry, chapter 19, verse 18 and following. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number failed mightily. See, there was no shortage of God's power and victory at work in Paul's ministry, but that's not the whole story either. Uh, Paul and other Christians also faced significant conflict and suffering. Uh, in chapter 19, verse 9 of Acts, Uh, Remember, some of the Jews tried to damage Paul's message and lead people away from it. Uh, In the second half of chapter 19, there's a riot because uh, some of the tradesmen who made idols of the great goddess Artemis uh, were losing business. And so Paul's life was actually in danger throughout this time and had to be protected. And then if you go over to Acts chapter 20, in Acts chapter 20 verse 3, there's a plot made against Paul that he needs to escape from. And then again, of course, later in chapter 20, as Paul is on his way to Rome after being away from Ephesus for some time, he actually calls together the elders, the leaders of the church in Ephesus to warn them about what life for the church would be like in the future. And he reminds them that his ministry among them had been through tears and through trials in verse 19 of chapter 20. In verse 23, he tells them that everywhere he goes, he is afflicted and expects to be put in prison. And then he warns them in verses 28 and following to keep watch over themselves and the church because false teachers would come in and try and discredit the message and turn people away from the gospel. And so as we come to this letter of Ephesians, which is written about five years after Paul had been in Ephesus, uh, everything that he had warned them about is happening. Paul is in prison as he writes to them. Uh, False teachers are troubling the Ephesian church. Pagan superstitions still abound. And the church actually doesn't look as powerful as it once looked. Things were hard. The gospel was opposed. Their apostle was looking incredibly weak in prison. And so the danger of discouragement was very real. And so why does Paul actually write this letter to the Ephesian church and those around there? Well, I'd, I'd say there's three things that come up in this letter. I think he writes, so that they would know, so that they would remember, and so that they would stand firm, that is that they would not lose heart. In the first half of Ephesians, uh, Ephesians as a book, breaks up fairly well, he prays for knowledge, that they would know certain things. So in chapter one, verse 16 and following, he prays that they will know Christ properly, that they will know the hope they have, the inheritance that they have been given, that they will know the power of God at work for them. And then in chapter 3, verse 17 and following, he prays that they will know the extraordinary love that Christ has for them. And so he prays that they will know these things. And then in chapter 2, verse 11 and following, he wants them to remember, to remember all that Christ has done for them. You know, it's one thing to kind of know what Christ has done for us. It's another thing to remember it, especially when things aren't going well. And so he wants them to remember that though they were once dead in their sins, alienated from God, that now, through Jesus, they have been raised up with Christ. And so in chapter 3, verse 13, he says to them, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. See, outwardly things don't look great. But Paul wants them to see with their spiritual eyes, what well, can't always be seen clearly physically they need to know and remember the truth of god's eternal plans so that they don't lose heart and and instead stand firm in the gospel okay well if you've got your bibles open ephesians 1 we're going to get to get there now uh, and look at the first 14 verses a little more closely uh, ephesians we know is a letter written by paul uh, written to the ephesians but it's likely that it's it's intended for a larger group of churches Uh, around the region of Ephesus. Uh, Paul's greeting in verses 1 and 2 is fairly standard. Um, We we see those kind of greetings in other letters but Paul begins by identifying himself as the writer and then by his designation as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Paul is establishing his credentials and official character of his writing. So as an apostle of Jesus Christ Paul is fully authorized and sent by by Jesus. He has the authority to proclaim the gospel and to establish and build up churches, uh, which we're going to see is actually crucial to the fulfillment of God's uh, great plans. But it's pretty overwhelming as you open up the first chapter of Ephesians chapter one, and you start looking closely at the uh, few verses that are there from verse three. I mean, some of our greatest theologians, uh, past and present, actually rave about the rich and impressive nature of this letter that Paul outlines, uh, where where he outlines God's great plans for the universe and the implications it has for us. And so verses we've heard, for verses 3 to 14, one long sentence. Uh, Paul piles up the descriptions of what God has done for us and why he's done it. And so as we look at the rest of uh, this passage here this morning, uh, in terms of our outline, it comes under three main headings. That is, all ours... All in Christ, all because of God. All ours, all in Christ, all because of God. Uh, so let's just pick it up if we can at verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I notice that Paul lays it on thick here. Uh, blessed be God with every spiritual blessing. Uh, to be blessed here is to be given things of benefit. Uh, God has blessed us with every blessing now the us here refers to all Christians Uh, everything of benefit we could possibly need God has blessed us with it's not however to be mistaken uh, as material blessings these are notice, as spiritual blessings in other words they are much greater than any possible material blessing that God might bless us with and we'll see that a little more clearly in a moment but now in the In the earlier days, uh, as I reflect on this particular passage, and I've reflected back on my earlier days in the Christian life, I remember on a number of occasions uh, being asked whether or not I had received the second blessing of the Holy Spirit. And from time to time, I was encouraged by another Christian person to pray that I would receive the second blessing of the Holy Spirit, which would empower me to live uh, the Christian life better. The first blessing was okay, uh, but I needed the second one as well. Now, evidently, I was somehow deficient in terms of spiritual blessings. But actually, that's a, that's a contradictory. That's contradictory to what we read here, isn't it? Because it says here that God has blessed me and you with every spiritual blessing. So to speak of a second blessing kind of makes people think that they don't have everything. But if you are in Christ, the Apostle Paul says you do. Now, furthermore, Paul tells us the sphere of this, these blessings that is every spiritual blessing God has given us is in the heavenly places now Paul actually uses that term heavenly places five times here in Ephesians and nowhere else in his letters uh, in chapter 1 verse 20 uh, both God and Christ are seated in the heavenly places above all other rule uh, while in chapter 2 verse 6 Christians have also been raised to sit with Christ in the heavenly places. But additionally, in chapter 3, verses 10, uh, it speaks of God's wisdom being made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Uh, And then finally, over in chapter 6, verse 12, the spiritual forces of evil arrayed against us are also in the heavenly places. And so what that actually tells us is that the heavenly places isn't just a kind of a locality where God exists and perhaps the evil forces as well, but it's part of our existence as well. It's the spiritual reality of our existence that we can't see, but that affects us. The heavenly places are the sphere where all God's blessings are put into effect for us. Now the problem I think for us flesh and blood kind of humans is that we don't understand very well the importance of the heavenly places in God's great plans for us Uh, we want all of our blessings in the physical places where we can touch and feel and see them and so we sometimes actually fail to understand the blessings that we actually have and so let's just take a a moment to look at how we've been blessed because that's what Paul praises God for here in this first chapter Uh, verse 4 he praises God because God has chosen us Uh, verse 5 he speaks of our adoption into God's family Verse seven, we have been redeemed through his blood and have forgiveness of our sins. Verses nine and 10, God has revealed his big plan for the fullness of time to us. And then in verses 13 and 14, we have been given the Holy Spirit as a guarantee until we ultimately acquire our our inheritance. And so there's a whole bunch of great blessings here that sometimes we skip over and don't notice, but let's just flesh them out a little bit. I mean, verses four and five speak of God's election. God has predestined us for adoption as his sons, as his children. Now, I want to acknowledge that people don't always understand this doctrine, nor do they always like it. When it comes to God choosing or predestining people, some people just want to ignore it, put it in the too hard basket. Others might even get angry about it. What right has God got to choose anyone? But in a sense, that's a bit of a funny question, isn't it, to ask God since he is God after all. But it's a question I've had to ask, and I'm very thankful for this doctrine. It's a wonderful doctrine, because without this doctrine, no one is going to heaven. If there's no election, then zero people would be saved. Why else do we pray that God would bring people to faith in him? The Bible tells us that if God didn't seek us, we would never seek him. Chapter 2, which we'll get to, tells us that that we were once dead in our sins, sons of disobedience rather than sons of God, deserving of God's wrath. But God has chosen to adopt us as his children, not because of any merit of ourselves. So the God of the universe has become our father. And when the Bible uses the word sons... It's not a a male-female thing. It's a relational term. It means heir. A son inherits all that belongs to his parents. There's no room for pride on our side. God chose the sinful. Isn't he wonderful? And the purpose of our election is that we should be holy and blameless before him, notice. That That is to be the character of our lives. But that's not the natural character of our lives, is it? Uh, Which is why in verse 7, notice, we have been blessed also with redemption and forgiveness. That is, in order to be adopted, we need to be redeemed and forgiven. In chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. I mean, Elsewhere, he says that we were slaves to sin, sons of disobedience. And so in order to be adopted as God's sons, we needed to be bought out of our slavery redeemed from a a helpless and hopeless situation as slavery is and forgiven from our sins in in other words our adoption came at a price it was a very hefty price we had to be bought out of slavery and set free and how did that happen God sent his own son to the cross verse 7 through his blood he bought us from sin and then finally by that most loving and gracious act of Jesus dying on the cross for us. In verses 13 and 14 he says we have been sealed with God's spirit as a guarantee of our inheritance. See now up up until verse 10 Paul has been speaking about the blessings of God uh, to all believers. All Christians are caught up in these blessings but notice in verse 11 Paul says that we have obtained an inheritance And then in verse 12, he qualifies that we. He says that we as those who were the first to hope in Christ. And so here Paul is reverting and he's saying we, that is we, Jewish Christians. We, the people of God, who are first to put our trust in the Lord Jesus. But in verse 13, he includes the Gentiles, he includes non-Jews. See in verse 13, he says, in him, you also when you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the divide in human history. Jew and Gentile together as one people of God under Jesus and God gives to all who believe his Holy Spirit as a seal guaranteeing what is to come. Now if you were a a Cattle rancher. I don't imagine there's many of them here. Uh, but you would put a seal on your cattle, right? I imagine you all understand that. You would brand your cattle with a hot iron to mark them out as those cattle that were owned by you. They belong to you. But God has given us his spirit to mark us out as those who belong to him. God has made us his children. We are his heirs who inherit every blessing that comes from him see god has made us who are sinners his own he treasures and cares for us he assures us that he will never let us go god has blessed us with every spiritual blessing no blessing is lacking no blessing is held back from us you know these are staggering things that god has done for us the the question is how do these blessings come to us then well it's actually not that hard to see in the text is it paul makes it very clear Notice what he says, every blessing that comes to us is all in Christ. Jesus is all through this passage. Uh, Paul refers to him 18 times in 14 verses. Uh, Verse three ought to be getting fairly familiar to us by now, but let me just read it again. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It's in Christ that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. So verse 5, our adoption is through Jesus Christ. Verse 7, it's in Jesus that we we have both redemption and forgiveness. And then in verses 9 and 10, God's plan for the fullness of time has been set forth in Christ. As well as those things, of course, verse 11, our inheritance has been attained in him. Our hope is in Christ in verse 12. And verse 13, we receive the Holy Spirit when we believe in Christ see no blessing that we receive comes about in any other way other than through Jesus Christ it's actually the way that God blesses it's really quite simple if you don't have Jesus you don't have the blessings and the way that Christ achieves them for us is through his death the shedding of his blood on the cross so that we might be redeemed forgiven, adopted, and incorporated into God's future plans for all of creation. See how blessed we are if we're among those who have put their trust in Jesus. But notice that Ephesians 1 draws a line in the sand, a line in the sand that people don't like getting drawn. Now, given what we see in these verses, how foolish are those who want to argue that all religions are the same, that our differences are merely cultural rather than substantial and foundational i mean ephesians 1 here begs to differ doesn't it every blessing of god comes through jesus christ that's what the bible teaches us no blessing of god comes in any other way other than anyone but jesus now that doesn't of course mean that we shouldn't treat people of other faiths with respect and love of course we should but we can in no way assume that that they have any share in God or his blessings whatsoever. See, Christians are those who actually agree with the Apostle Peter. And when Peter was questioned by the religious authorities in Acts chapter 4, remember he responded with great clarity and conviction that there is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. See, if any professing Christian thinks otherwise then they are opposed actually to the very foundations of Christianity and they're in danger of missing out on all of God's blessings. Well, that's how these blessings come to us in Christ. But the question that remains is, why do these blessings come to us? And the answer that uh, Paul gives here is that it's all because of God. It's his plan, his purpose, his grace. Uh, The blessings that are ours as Christians are all a part of God's plan. It's God's plan to shower us with these blessings. Again and again, Paul makes it clear that it's all His doing in line with his will. So in verse 1, notice, Paul is an apostle by the will of God. In verse 5, we are predestined and adopted according to the purpose of his will. While in verse 9, He has made known the mystery of his will. And then finally, in verse 11, he works all things according to the counsel of his will. See, this is God's plan. He does it all. We don't. He plans. He initiates. He fulfills his plans all in accordance with his will. Now, I didn't find God. God found me. And boy, am I thankful that he did. But his plan is bigger than simply blessing us. See, our blessing is part of what comes through his greater purpose, which he has now revealed to those who are in Jesus Christ. Uh, Verses 9 and 10, I think, are the two verses. uh, Many people say these are the verses that uh, sum up the whole of Ephesians, but they're the two verses that sum up God's intentions for his entire creation. They're a summary, if you like, of his entire purpose from before the creation of the world and spanning into eternity. This is what he's on about. If you want to know what God is on about, what he's doing, well, here it is in these two verses, verse 9 and 10. Let me pick up verse 9 making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So here is God's ultimate purpose, the climax towards which all of history is heading. And if you want See, creation is heading towards a climax at which everything and everyone will come under the headship of Jesus Christ. See, here is God's grand plan for the entire universe and for all of history. And there's no shortage of people, are there, who are searching for truth and meaning in this world, who remain lost in the dark. But there is a plan, and God has blessed us by letting us in on what his plan is. And God is not weak, And he's not powerless in fulfilling his plan for history. It's already well advanced. Jesus has already come. That was promised long before. He has already died. He's already been risen from the dead. He is seated now at the right hand of God, verse 20. And the day is coming when he will return to judge. And so how does all this help us think about God's power today? And what at times appears to be a weak looking church. In the words of the author Richard Phillips, people don't think much of the church, they don't think much of Christians. The church is perhaps somewhere where some people go to get something for themselves, maybe to get a lift, to get some help, to make some decent friends. But the world looks on the church as something insignificant and weak. You know, the great and powerful things in the world deal with skyscrapers and stock markets and rising and falling empires, those kind of things. But that way of thinking was especially a danger, I think, for the fledgling churches in Paul's day. Uh, They were viewed, the church in Paul's day was viewed as an insignificant cult among a sea of religious groups. Perhaps they even viewed themselves that way. But here we see that the church cannot be rightly understood apart from seeing our relationship with the exalted Jesus Christ, the one in whom God is fulfilling his eternal plans to unite all things in heaven and earth. Now, God's plan, of course, is all about Jesus, not about me. I'm not at the center of the universe. That's where Jesus is. But we're a part of God's eternal plan by being united to Christ. We need to lift our eyes to see the one who rules over every power and all of history. We mustn't be unsettled by the surface appearance of things. The church is part of God's grand plans and you know we often come to this part of any given sermon we just want to know what we need to do so you've told us all that stuff what do we need to do well notice that that's not what Paul's concerned about here is he Paul's not concerned about what we do at this point Paul is first and foremost concerned with what we know he's concerned about what we remember what we don't lose heart about see our world is not random and meaningless god has a plan that spans all of time and eternity and it is all being brought to fruition in his son the lord jesus christ that's what we need to remember that's what we need to understand and so my prayer i think is the same as that of the apostle paul's in verses 17 and following in fact as we conclude let me pray paul's prayer for the church in ephesus let me pray for us this morning please join me I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you, Wild Street Church, a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. Amen.